The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, Happy to be here two weeks in a row seems to be a record for me lately. Um, A lot of our listeners have graduate school on their minds. We get a lot of questions related to, you know, well, if I want to eventually go on to become a lawyer, um, what do you think about this idea? Or if I want to go on to become a doctor? So we're going to be talking a little bit about that today in two of our segments. Um, The first around how important where you do your undergrad is to getting into medical school. And then also what you need to be thinking about once you get to college if you ultimately hope to go on to get your MBA. Um, But before we talk about either of those things, for those of you on the other end uh, of the spectrum and really more focused on saving for college at this point, um, we're going to be talking about 529 plans with my colleague and former financial aid officer at Emerson College, among a few other institutions, also happened to work in education finance for J.P. Morgan Chase, so has that additional insight, um, Stacey McFeeters. Hi, Stacey. Hi, Beth. How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Um, So 529 plans, certainly a big, um, in my mind anyway, looms largest when you think about saving for college. And um, I know that a lot of people think about 529 savings plans. We're going to talk a little bit about how you think about choosing the right plan. But before we do that, can you just give us a brief definition of what a 529 savings plan actually is? Sure, sure. So as you said, it definitely is the most popular college-specific savings plan that that we encounter and that folks tend to to select when saving for college. And really, very simply put, it's a tax-advantaged savings plan specifically um, targeted targeted at saving for college. So it has some benefits associated with it while you're saving um, that allow it to be used for college tax and penalty-free, um, and, and the earnings grow tax and penalty-free as well. So really, it's just a tax advantage savings plan specifically intended for college. Got it. All right. So with that said, there are a lot of different options out there to choose from as far as 529s are concerned. So in your mind, what are the most important factors you want to consider when you're selecting the right plan for you and your family? That's a great question, and it's probably the most important question. And I think <laughs> the first thing that, that, that families should really think about is looking within their own state at their state plan first. However, before I even delve down that path, I want folks to understand that 529 savings plans are not prepaid plans. They don't require that the student reside and, and attend college in-state. Um, but the reason I say that you should look at your, at your own home state first is because one of the first 
sort of features or factors that I would consider in choosing a plan is whether or not they have an incentive or a tax benefit associated with saving in a 529 plan in your home state. So usually that would be the first factor, and if you do, take a look and see what that benefit might be. If you don't or you don't feel like that state plan incentive is is lucrative enough, I think there's a lot of other options that you can look at. I think relationships can be important. So perhaps you are working with uh, an advisor or a planner or maybe you have all of your retirement with one particular fund and you really like the, the operations of that fund, the customer service. All of those things, that can certainly be an option. Um, other things to look at would be certainly look at the underlying fees associated with, with that 529 plan. And the reason I say that is, you know, it does cost a little money to save mm-hmm. money, but what you yeah. want to do is spend as little as you possibly can. So when you're looking at a plan, take a look at their underlying fees. The, the fee that you're most interested in is sort of the compilation of all of them, and that would be what is called the asset based expense ratio, which really is how much is it going to cost me to save this money. You want to be under 1% where you can, and that's kind of a good, a good indicator of mm-hmm. you know, what it might cost. Um, and then finally, I think there's a couple of last two things that I don't think are as important but generally come into conversation, and that would be things like rankings. Um, you know, where is this plan ranked nationally among others? Um, there are two sites that do a great job with the rankings. Morningstar is one, and, and a website called savingforcollege.com is another. My only caveat about rankings is, you know, past performance is not necessarily a guarantee of future performance. So, yep. like always, treat that as you would. And then finally, there are some rewards programs associated with some of the 529 programs. So if you were, for example, saving in a 529 and you had a, a rewards opportunity for other money that you spend for contributions to be made on your behalf, those are certainly something else that you could look at. Again, probably not the most important feature, but a nice to have if it exists. Got it. Hey, very quick question for you before we move on um, to a few other questions I have, and that is, where would you go to find out if your state does have um, a benefit associated with an in-state 529 plan? Yep, absolutely. So you could really look in a couple of places. First, you could look at your own state plan. So if you really don't even know where to begin, type the state you're from into your favorite uh, browser and, and maybe, you know, 529 in New Jersey, and mm-hmm. they will give you the plan details. And once you're in the plan itself, you can find all of those details. However, Got if it. you'd like a shortcut, um, I love a site called savingforcollege.com. It has all of the 529 plans kind of detailed, same thumbnail for each program. So you can look at all the attributes in a similar way. And, and it's just a really good shortcut. Once you've kind of decided on your plan, I would really encourage you to look at the plan documents themselves, really read through them. But, you know, in terms of doing your, your quick research, you know, an aggregator site like savingforcollege.com is a great starting place. Awesome. Okay. So next question, um, and I do think this one can be a big one, is, you know, do you put the 529 plan in your student's name? Should it be in your name? Who should own the plan? Another great question. Very often the parent of the student would be the owner and the student would be the beneficiary. That's okay. generally what we see most often, and it's also the most friendly when it comes to uh, future financial aid opportunities and things like that. Now, we often get a lot of questions from families asking if the grandparents should open their own 529 or aunts or uncles or whoever you might be lucky enough to have contribute for you. And mm-hmm. certainly they can, um, but it's probably even a better idea to have one plan in the name of the parent and then maybe ask those folks if, if they would make a contribution. Um, mm-hmm. But again, it, it really 
doesn't matter a tremendous amount, but, but from the sort of friendliness of the financial aid formula going forward, the parent as the owner is probably the best sort of long-term opportunity. Okay. So parents should really own these in the ideal world. And then yep. in the, the, you know, another question, I have more than one child, and does that therefore mean I should have more than one 529 plan, one for each of them? Yep. So this really could boil down to personal preference. By the time the distributions are made, so let's say, for example, there's two children, you decide you're only going to save in the name of one for whatever purpose, you know, maybe ease. The reality is by the time distributions are made, it ha- the, the uh, beneficiary has to be the student for whom the distributions are being made. So if at that point you still only have one account, you might want to to sort of separate them into two. Mm-hmm. Um, but because 529s are really simply transferable, you certainly could keep it in one. Um, and then, you know, say, for example, the first student is older, they go through, then you change the name of the beneficiary. You could absolutely do that. But the only other caveat that I would give is you want to take a look at, and this is a little bit more detail probably than you need right now, <laughs> but if you're thinking about investing in what is called an age-based plan, which, which means the investments are made based on the age of the child and when they'd be attending college, you might want to separate those two accounts from the outset especially if the kids are different ages, because obviously the investments would be more aggressive the younger the child, and as they get older, mm-hmm. they'd be a little less so. So okay. really, again, personal preference, but probably from an ease perspective and from an overall investment perspective, separate plans is probably a better bet. But again, you know, not a deal breaker either way. Right. And as with many things in this world that we live in, it depends, right? There can be... <laughs> nuances that would make one choice right for one person and another right for another. Exactly, exactly. I feel like most of the questions I'm asked, I, I could answer with the word, the words, it depends, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. it's my favorite <laughs> phrase. And if I had made money every time I said it, I would be a wealthy person right now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So then here's an age-old question, and I'm going to guess that the it depends may come up, and that is kind of, how much should you aim to try and save in that 529 plan? Is there a specific figure or maybe a percentage or something like that? So my first answer to that question, other than it depends, always is whatever you can. Because what mm-hmm. we find a lot of times in speaking with families is they get what I call saving paralysis. They think that they're going to have to save so much that they can't even get started and they save nothing at all. So let mm-hmm. me start by saying, please save whatever you can. Then if you want to be strategic about it and you really feel like you're the kind of family that needs an end game, you can certainly you know, do a little research to figure out you know, what that might be. Um, it, it, the numbers are high. So that's the first thing that I say is, you know, I, we start a lot of conversations with folks and they say, how much should I save? And I usually will say, let me answer that later. And the reason for that is I don't want to cause panic. So realistically speaking, today we know that the most expensive colleges in the United States are, are full cost of attendance of, of a little bit over $70,000. We'd have to do some mathematics to figure out, you know, how old is your child? What is the expected rate of increase? You know, what will it be by the time that they are, you know, whatever age they might be? And we could certainly give you a number, but most people won't achieve that number. And the good news is you don't have to save everything. You know, you right. can always save some, you know, consider whether or not you'd apply for financial aid, um, use cash flow or other financing methods. So, the, the long answer to that is as much as you can. However, if you were thinking about, you know, a, a, a family of, you know, w- with a newborn, just know that the cost of attendance 
is going to be pretty extreme you know, by mm-hmm. the time they're in school, right. assuming that we're looking at things continuing the way that they have. Um, right. You know, worst case scenario, if we're looking at you know an eighteen, uh, I'm sorry, a newborn right now, the projected cost of attendance when when they are eighteen at the most expensive schools is going to be about five hundred thousand dollars. Oh my, that's God. a lot to save. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that is. And who so, knows, there may be a good shakeout before then. So um, We can hope, right? Absolutely. Yes. So I like that advice. Whatever you can is really at the, the core of it, right? And if you can put away $10 a week now, awesome, do that. And if that ultimately becomes $100 a week, even better, right? But you do what you can, and any little bit will ultimately be helpful when it comes time to, to pay for it. That's absolutely right. Um, so you mentioned a little bit earlier, and I meant to follow up on it right then and forgot, but um, let's come back to that. You mentioned, you know, uh, 529 impacting financial aid. So tell us a little bit about, you know, does saving a lot of money in a 529, is that going to negatively impact your chances to get need-based financial aid, or how is that piece considered? Thanks. I'm glad you came back to that. I mentioned it and was going to loop back, but I'm really glad you mentioned it. So while it's obviously a very complicated formula, what I want folks to take away from this question is that saving has a very small impact on the financial aid formula. If the financial aid formula today that exists today remains, just understand that the formula is largely driven by income. The much greater percentage of a family's expected contribution towards college is coming from income. The most that they're going to consider from a parent asset, which a 529 would be considered, would be about 5.67%. So if you saved $100,000, the most they're going to expect from that is $5,000. So the takeaway is saving really doesn't negatively impact you if you're saving in the name of the parent. If you're saving saving in the name of the child, it can have a greater impact, but um, in most cases, 529s are treated as the asset of the parent. All right, so, and that's another reason why you want to be the owner of the 529 plan rather than somebody else. Right. Got it. All right. So I guess last question for those people out there who are feeling like they're really great at managing their money. Is it possible to invest in a 529 plan and manage those investments that are, you know, the, the way the money is being invested, invested in the 529 you can to an extent. So earlier on, I mentioned that a lot of families, when they invest in a 529, generally select what is called an age-based option. So the investments are made within the plan based on the age of the, of the child, very much like a lot of retirement plans when they have um, you know, an end date in mind. If you're mm-hmm. someone who really wants to manage your own expenses, you can certainly select your investments, and, and, and you can do that as a part of your, uh, your enrollment. The only caveat that I would give is that the regulations around 529s only allow for reallocation of investments twice a year. So just know that you can only kind of rebalance twice a year. So if you're somebody who might want to play around with those on a, on a weekly, monthly, regular basis, you really can't do that in the 529. Um, so, you know, there may be other, other saving um, avenues you might want to consider. But if you're like the majority of folks who are kind of like, okay, I need money to save, I need to park it mm-hmm. and have something happen with it, 529 is great um, in the age-based option. Or someone who says, you know what, I might want to take a look at it every once in a while, but for the most part, follow the plan. You certainly could choose to, to make changes twice a year. Got it. All right. Stacy. as always, incredibly helpful. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Up next, we're going to be talking about how to maximize your college experience if your ultimate goal is an MBA, especially in a top program. So don't go away. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, and thanks for sticking with the show, or thanks for joining us if you're just tuning in. I'm super excited to welcome Judith Odera to the show today. She is a former undergrad admissions officer at Penn. We did not actually work together there. However... I credit her with helping me get my job at Penn, so she has a special (laughs) place in my heart. Um, She also, when she was there, was uh, an admissions officer for Wharton's MBA program, which is what makes her our expert uh, today, and she's now one of the primary partners in Fortuna Admissions, which does MBA advising, so they kind of do what we do here at College Coach, but they do it in the MBA space. Judith, thanks so much for being here today. Beth, I'm so glad that we reconnected, and um, you're, you're giving me a lot of credit for, for starting you out in your career, but um, I'll take it, because I, I'm, <laughs> I right. love working with you, and I love you know, this opportunity to be on the show, so thanks so much for having with me. Absolutely, absolutely. So, we get a lot of questions. We have a lot of students that we talk to um, who have the ultimate goal, not just of getting their undergraduate degree, but of going on and getting graduate school degrees, and an MBA is certainly extraordinarily popular these days. And so a lot of times we'll get questions from students around, you know, what do I need to be doing to ultimately get my MBA? And, you know, for me, they're in high school. For us, it's sort of like, well, you know, you don't really need to be worrying about that right now. But when they get to college, I think you and I have been talking that there are some things that they could be doing. And so I thought we could share some of that um, 
with our listeners. And I think one of the first pieces and one of the big questions we get is whether or not students do they need to be business majors as undergrads? Is that really important when it comes time to apply to business school? It's a great question. And I have to tell you, on occasion, when I was acting director at Wharton, I would have people come into my office and moms and dads and ask, you know, which school is going to be better uh, or what major will be better for my student should they eventually go on to go to business school? And I'm thinking, wow, that's, you know, probably six or ten years away. So, right. <laughs> um, so we kind of, we definitely, you know, got a lot of questions around that topic. And I would say that students really need to study what they are passionate about and interested in. Um, mm-hmm. So certainly some folks choose undergrad business and it's a great fit for them. And they're, you know, they're learning and they're growing their skill set. And there are others that we would see applying for MBAs that came in as undergrad English majors or international mm-hmm. relations or history. So there was no sense from the admissions perspective that you had to have studied, um, you know, economics or, you know, business or been in a, you know, an accounting major as an undergrad. Um, and some individuals don't even come to the fact that they might be interested in business until much later in their education. Right. Uh, the one thing I will say, though, is that having some quantitative work in in some regard as an undergrad can be really helpful. It helps you to kind of build a transcript um, so that when if you do eventually apply to business school, you can the admissions officers can sort of see, oh yeah, you know, you did have that calculus, you did have that statistics class, um, which may be ultimately helpful for you when you when you later on, you know, either pursue a career in business and or apply to business school. Right. Got it. So I mean, yeah, I always think about it from my perspective. I was an English major in college. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated. I didn't know. I always feel like business school is often something that comes to you once you're out in the world and you're you're yeah. in a career and you suddenly realize, wow, you know that where that person is or what that person is doing looks really interesting to me. And I noticed that he or she has an MBA. It looks like that might be the right path. But who knew that when you were 18, right? So of course. Um, and that's what college yeah. is all about, is really exploring those opportunities. Right. Um, and so certainly, you know, in, in some of the better-known undergrad business programs, you know, have very robust undergraduate application pools, but so many schools just, you know, students come in and they're like, I don't, I don't really know what I want to study, and it does take a while for that to sort of gel. Right, exactly. But I love the advice about taking some quantitative classes. I did not yeah, do that. You know, I would have I, been I hampered. I think that, that we, it's something that, that we say a lot now, and mm-hmm. um, to students that maybe come in and don't necessarily score as highly as they would like to on the GMAT or the GRE and are looking for some kind of explanation or some kind of verification of their quantitative ability. Got it. Right. So in terms of, um, you mentioned quantitative, which I think is really important. So calculus, stats, some type of math-based coursework. Mm-hmm. Um, any other particular co- courses or it sounds like there aren't really any prerequisites, but are there any other things that it's really nice to see on an undergrad transcript as a, an MBA admissions officer? So unlike uh, medical school that has very specific pre-med requirements, business school is really incredibly open. Um, and there's no, you must have had econ and there's no, you must have had FIN 101. Um, so there's, there's not that, that sense of, this is where you, you, you have to be, you know, showing your prowess. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly, I, as I mentioned, you know, the quantitative aspects are a great thing to have. 
Uh, lots of students will take other kinds of classes that really fuel, you know, their interest in a completely different arena, which then springboards them into their first couple of years out, out of college and that career path. So mm-hmm. I think I said it a little bit earlier, but following what kind of excites you and that you feel like you could really grab onto, to me, is a great indication that you, you're thinking about a path, you're thinking about what happens next, and maybe that translates into a career which then could lead to business school. So right. it's kind of a roundabout answer, but I, I, I think that choosing classes that you really deeply are invested in, which doesn't happen all the time and takes a little mm-hmm. while to get right, can help to then form what might become a career interest and, and, again, could lead to further schooling. So that's sort of the approach. When I look at an undergrad transcript now, that's sort of what I'm looking for. Right, so some kind of some type of cohesiveness where it looks like the student really did have an area of focus and passion that they've then translated into um, something after the fact. If that can happen that way, that's sort of ideal, it sounds like. Exactly, and it doesn't happen for everybody, and it just should eventually not be, oh, you're taking your required classes, and then you're taking a couple of extra classes for a major. Hopefully, you right. find something that really excites you and that, and that you're following, and that shows in you and in, in how you sort of choose your next steps for your career. Got it. Okay, that's interesting. What about how well you do in those classes? How important is that GPA going to be, the undergrad GPA, when it's time to apply to business school? So that's a really interesting question, and um, it's one that we talk about a lot. So if you are taking quant classes, you want those to be A's and B's. We really don't. Uh, when I was at Wharton, we're, we're nervous about seeing C's in those quant classes. Mm-hmm. And if you're an electrical engineer, those classes, for example, are notoriously harder than if you are studying Italian. I'm, I'm just mm-hmm. thinking of a, you know, something or very much. <laughs> right, or English. So, yeah. you know, there's a little bit of, um, I guess, credence given to the fact that you probably are not going to have a 3.8 or a 3.9 if you're if you're coming out of a of a really tough engineering program or a really tough pre med program, um, and certainly the kind of school you go to would impact what that GPA is going to look like. So um, you know there's schools that are that are that are much tougher on the on the grading curve, and they're kind of well known. And so a little bit of acknowledgement is given in that arena. Um, admissions officers on the MBA side, much like admissions officers on the undergrad side understand that you're coming in and it may take a while to get ramped up. And that first year of college can be tough adjusting from Mm -hmm. being away from home, managing your own time, choosing what classes you're going to be in, how you're going to, you know, study, where you're going to study. Needless to say that first year, those grades may not be as strong as you would like. And it's certainly the kind of thing that we are looking at much as high school and college they're looking for that growth curve. That's what MBA admissions officers are looking for as well. You know, did you sort of hit your stride in your second year, and were you finding things that really excited you? So right. a 4.0 is not a be-all and end-all. Um, and I talk with people all the time that are thinking about applying, and the first thing I say to them is, in addition to your GPA, I need to see your transcript because yep. that really helps me to put in context what you're, you know, what you're presenting to the admissions committee. 
Right. And in that way, it's, like you say, very, very similar to undergrad admissions. I could never say to someone based on just a GPA, oh, yes, you'll be competitive or you won't, because a 4.0 in regular level classes is not going to cut it at some colleges. Um, so exactly. You need to see exactly. the whole picture. Right. Okay. So you mentioned um, a little bit about, you know, taking into consideration that some there are some colleges where they grade you know, on a curve where they're really focused on, you know, deflating grades and then others where they're really known for inflated grades. And I'm curious if um, the name brand of the school, because this is a huge question for our families in terms of, you know, do we need to go to the best? And I'm air quoting that right now, because what does best really mean? But if we say best as most known or most selective school, is that, you know, what role does that play in in your opportunities to get in? Right. Well, certainly, you know, we, we want students, no matter where they're coming from, when I was at Wharton, you really want to make sure that students are maxing out on what the opportunities are that are given to them. And mm-hmm. just a name brand school may not have been possible financially. It may not have culturally been a good fit. But if you're coming from a state school, you're coming from a local school, you know, doing as well as you possibly can in that environment, both inside and outside the classroom, is going to be key. So right. it's, it's, it's interesting because there are going to be fewer students coming from those kinds of environments and in a way that almost allows you to stand out in the application pool. Yep. Um, and it, it is certainly hard to kind of imagine, oh, you know, seven years down the line, what am I going to be wanting to do? You know, I'm, I'm just entering college this year. But sort of thinking about no matter where you go, really taking advantage of opportunities is going to be so critical. And I wouldn't say name brand is the only way to get into an MBA program. And in fact, I would, I would probably promote the opposite, that coming from a path that might not be so straightforward can really help your application because there's just not as many people with that background coming into the pool. Right, right. Like, and, you know, I'm a big proponent of that as well, and it's really nice to have it kind of um, to get what I have always thought sort of supported by what you're saying because it's, you know, it's you can be a big fish in a smaller pond mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. sometimes, whereas, you know, if you go to the the more selective the school, the more those students have their sights set on the exact same things, right? On the, the sure. top 20 MBA program or the top flight medical school. Or, right, and right. The, the competition is going to be just that much fiercer, whereas you might be able to carve your own path a little bit by, by going a little um, afield. But your point is not to be missed that you need to be a standout wherever you go. Um, and, exactly. And, and right? there's just, yeah. if you're, you know, that, that there's more opportunity. You may be the only one that gets a specific kind of in- summer internship, whereas if you go to a different, you know, larger or maybe well, more well-known school, there may be 20 people that have that particular internship. So right. um, it, it's really about where you feel comfortable and how you're going to make the most of being a member of that community. And, and that, to me, was always as an admissions director, so important, and now as a counselor is so important as well. Right, absolutely. So in terms of, we talked about coursework and how well or not you need to do and where you need to go. What about the kinds of activities? Are you looking at college activities when a student is applying for a program? Yeah, because the undergrad engagement really shows a lot about what, how engaged that individual would be on, on, in your program 
uh, on the MBA side. So much like under, undergrad high, in high school when you're applying for undergrad, there's no specific set of, oh, you have to join the following four clubs to be considered. But whatever mm-hmm. you do, hopefully you'll, you'll grow your involvement, you'll demonstrate leadership, it'll be something you really care about, so you're putting you know, effort and time into it. And rather than just being a member of seven things, maybe there's two or three things that really matter to you and you're able to make a lasting impact. That, to us, was always interesting to see, you know, that you, you built a specific kind of program or you worked with a specific kind of mentoring, for example, and then mm-hmm. that continued after you left as well. Um, right. So that you're leaving somewhat of a legacy. Mm-hmm. I've recently gotten a lot of questions about, you know, how are fraternities and sororities viewed? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? And there's really no judgment about whether or not a student decides to join or not join. Again, it's the kind of thing that you do want to make sure that, you know, you, if you're committed to it, that you do have some kind of leadership role so that right. you're taking on additional responsibilities within the organization. Um, and it, another thing I'll mention is that frequently athletes feel like there's not a lot of other things they can do besides be athletes and go to class, so being a scholar mm-hmm. athlete. And that, for business schools, really shows tremendous time management, dedication, and focus. So mm-hmm. it, it, was, it was not unusual to be very excited when we would see college athletes come through because we always knew that they would be able to kind of juggle the demands of being a business school student really well. Right, absolutely, because the level of, require, of commitment at the collegiate level is extreme. Um, so yes. I could appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. We have a couple more minutes. So just quickly, um, summer internships, how important are those when it comes time to apply? Great question. And I think sometimes at certain schools, there's a real arms race to get to the best firm or to get to the best bank or to get to the Mm -hmm. best possible internship. And once again, it's a question of follow, follow what really interests you and really excites you and give yourself the opportunity to explore a little bit. Um, some students are happy going back and being summer camp counselors, and that's great. And that, you know, doesn't deter from them eventually going to business school. Um, some students might decide to spend a summer studying for the GRE or the GMAT. Um, mm-hmm. Once again, you know, certainly a great, a great use of, of those summer months. Um, but for those students that do decide to do an internship um, and to gain that experience that might then propel them into their next steps career-wise, um, it, is, it is always great to have a sense of ownership of, of that internship process so that in reflection, when you're working on your resume and you're talking about it, it should have given you opportunities to grow as an individual perhaps develop some leadership skills, even, and and students will say this to me all the time, oh, but I'm just coming out of my first year or I'm just coming out of my second year. How can that happen? And I talk a lot about informal leadership and informal sort of mentoring. So Mm -hmm. whatever it is that you choose to do over that, the summers, that they all build on one from the next, from the next. Um, and there's no right or wrong. There's no, again, there's no expectation that you, you would have you know, interned at a specific place, but that you, you really committed to it. And so those 10 weeks that you're spending, which is usually the amount of time at that internship, uh, you're building some relationships. You never know if this is a place that you might want to go back and work for or, or, or the people you might want to work with after you graduate. Um, so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intensive and specific way to start to really build that profile. Got it. Okay. Really quickly, um, you mentioned GMAT, GRE, and passing. Mm-hmm. Does it matter which one you take and any advice on when you take that? 
So there's a lot of debate about whether or not the GRE is better for people that have been in liberal arts or less comfortable with the GMAT. I generally tell people to take both practice exams, much like the ACT and the SAT, figure mm-hmm. out which one you feel more comfortable with, and taking it when you're in school. The scores are good for five years, so it's not a bad idea to get it out of the way, maybe the summer before senior year, um, because it is, it is the kind of thing that is much better tackled when you're actually in study mode. It's a little right. harder to go back, and, and any 27-year-old will tell you it's hard to go back when you've been out of school for a couple of years and really hit the books. Um, currently the GREs are not, are are not always calculated in rankings, which is why there's some discussion about whether or not those are an exam that students without a quantitative background should be taking. Um, and you can read all about it. Um, you know, it's kind of all over the industry pages. Um, but it is certainly the kind of exam that we, we, we hear from students that they're really glad that they knocked it out sometime before they graduated, just so it was one less thing they had to eventually worry about. Right, because when you're applying to business school, generally you're working a full-time job. That could be extraordinarily time-consuming. Right? Yeah, so taking the GREs or the GMATs, trying to work on your applications and go to work every day and other, you know, have a life it can be really yeah. tricky. Exactly, exactly. Judith, thank you so much for joining us today. Super helpful and insightful. Well, thank you so much. I had a great time. Look forward to speaking with you again soon. All right, great. Um, when we come back, we're going to be talking about medical school admissions and how much your where you go as an undergrad is going to impact that. So don't go away. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Can you truly be a change agent in your community? We think you can. Tune in every week for Envision with host Thomas Rosenberg. The show is all about building an inclusive and just future by connecting people with ideas. Connect with what's happening in your community, your country, and around the world as Thomas speaks with amazing guests who are fostering change and making their communities better. Envision is heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Uh, Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We have been talking about graduate school today. Um, At least in our previous segment, we were talking about um, MBA admissions. And in this segment, we're actually going to be talking a little bit about some medical school admissions. I'm super excited because we recently had someone wonderful join our team who happened to be uh, a director of admissions for medical schools at both Columbia University and Stanford University. Um, and so she's here today. Lauren, this is, it's Lauren DiProspero. And Lauren, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, we're super excited to have you here at College Coach and to have someone with this expertise on the team. Um, we have probably of all the different graduate schools um, that students may be thinking about when they're going through the uh, undergraduate process, I would say that med- medical school looms the largest. I um, and when yeah, I worked, at, you know, just something. I don't know what it is, but a lot, a lot, a lot of students start out anyway, um, mm-hmm. thinking yeah. that medical school is in their future. And um, you know, I would say it sometimes felt like half to one hundred percent of the applications I was reading on a daily <laughs> basis at Penn were like, and eventually I'm going to be a doctor. And I would just think, yes. if, if this many people actually became yeah, doctors, no one would do anything else. Um, but so we do get a lot of questions about that. So today, what I was hoping we could talk a little bit about is um, kind of the role of your undergraduate institution in that step before medical school. Um, and, and so I guess for starters, what do you see that role as um, when you think about med school admissions and the, the elements that are important? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. You know, an undergraduate institution can um, play a big role in the medical school admissions process, but, you know, not necessarily in the way that most people think. Um, you know, I think there are a couple of important factors to consider if you're eventually interested in attending medical school. And the first is really finding a college that provides you with great real-life experiences. So, you know, what does that mean? Well, in the context of medical school, you know, you have access to research, volunteering, shadowing doctors, um, being involved in clubs and activities, and so on. So exploring mm-hmm. medicine is very important, um, primarily because it gives you an understanding of the field that you're thinking about choosing, but it also shows medical schools you've thought about what it means to become a doctor. Um, you know, medical schools want students to be involved in clubs and activities that interest them, and that is ones that are beyond the scope of medicine. And, you know, I know that might seem counterintuitive to mm-hmm. students um, who may think that medical schools only want to see that they've pursued medicine. Um, students may believe they need to drop, let's say, orchestra in favor of shadowing more doctors. Um, but, you know, just like with undergraduate, you have to follow your passion. So if you love playing the violin, do that. If you want to major in English, major in English. Um, right. you know, it comes down to what do we all want a doctor to be who's treating the people that we love the most. You know, we all want a human being, which means that the doctor can relate to you. Um, it means having passions that are outside of medicine and being articulate and compassionate and knowledgeable. Um, and there are many different ways to hone these skills, and they don't all need to be medically focused. And, you know, my second recommendation when looking at schools and, and figuring out where to go in undergraduate is looking for a robust pre-med advising program. 
um, you know, you're really going to need help and guidance to meet all of the required coursework, um, crafting your medical school application list and accessing some of the opportunities like shadowing and research that you may not be able to find on your own. Um, mm-hmm. But kind of think about who's part of that advising team. So what additional roles might they play at the university? Some schools might have someone in the bio department advising pre-med students, either as a standalone or as part of career development. And as you find out all of this information, it'll help you figure out the school provides the advising you feel you'd need to be prepared to apply to and attend medical school. Right. Right. No, that makes sense. And I think um, it, it is, it's what that sounds like is very similar to what we talk about when we talk about how high schools are viewed in the admissions process for undergrad, right? It's mm-hmm. really much Absolutely. more about what have you taken advantage of? How have you followed mm-hmm. your interests than, oh, that's a top high school. And as a result, exactly. you know, yep. You're in, come on exactly. in, walk in, because it doesn't work that way. So right. th- then this leads to the next question, um, which seems like it might be a cut and dried answer. But, I, you know, as with everything, I do think there are nuances to it. So I'm going to ask mm-hmm. it anyway. And, and this is, you know, we will frequently have students let's say they have three acceptances in hand and Mm -hmm. they're trying to decide which one is, you know, which one to choose. And inevitably they'd gravitate towards what they would consider the best one. And I, as always, when I say best, I do air quotes. No one can see me, but I'm doing (laughs) them right now um, because best means so many different things. But in this case, what they really mean is the one that is the most selective and or with the best brand name. Um, and, and I guess my question for you is, is that the, you know, should they always choose on the basis of that? Right. And I think that's a great question. Um, you know, as, as I said previously, you know, your time in college is preparing you for medical school. So it really doesn't matter what college you're attending. So if you attend a brand name, you know, the quote unquote selective school and you do nothing, you're not going to be as competitive as the student who attends sort of the the less competitive, less well-known school and take Mm -hmm. advantage of every opportunity um, to prepare themselves for medical school. You know, the most important thing is to select a school that you can do well at academically, that you can grow as a person, and that you can take advantage of what the school has to offer. And for some, that may be the, so quote-unquote, best, most selective school that they're admitted to. And for others, that might mean a different school. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, it's the age old question of do you thrive in competition? Because at the more selective levels you get, the more students with their eyes set on um, medical school or you could be a big fish in a small pond where you might be, you know, a superstar um, compared to everyone around you. And I always, as an example, give. So my best friend is a doctor and we went to college together and, you know, so she was coming out of Cornell University and had a lot of competition when it was time to apply to medical school. And one of her closest friends in medical school who um, was, you know, in the same class and in the same fairly selective medical school, um, went to University of Connecticut, a great school for sure, um, with a little bit less competition applying into medical school. And I think she was a a big fish in a small pond. And I I don't want to, you know, for all I know, there were tons of kids aspiring to that, but I always got the sense that they were great examples of two different ways in which you could get there. Um, and it worked brilliantly for both of them. So, yeah. um, 
Yeah. So I think if if you're if our listeners are are sensing a trend here, this came up in the previous conversation when we were talking about MBA admissions. And the bottom line is that sometimes it can be, you know, you got to choose the place that's the right fit for you, and that's where right. your your greatest opportunity is likely to come. Um, do you think? And I think based on what you were saying a little bit earlier, that the I know the answer, but again, let, let's talk through it a little bit. Um, certainly not everyone knows when they go into school uh, as an undergrad that they ultimately are going to become doctors. There are many students who think they are and who ended up on a completely different path. But for those who are pretty focused on it at this stage, um, how much do you think that should weigh into their choices when they are choosing an undergraduate program? I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, should they completely set aside the goal of medical school and just consider the undergraduate program for its own merits and not consider that next step? You know, that's a great question, and it's, it's a subject I'm kind of torn on. Um, because mm-hmm. I've worked on the undergraduate side, and as we kind of talked about, there are so many students who indicate pre-med um, on their application and are convinced that that's the path that they're going to take. Um, but college can change your path pretty drastically sometimes. You know, student might start exploring medicine and realize that it isn't what they thought. Maybe they discover they really don't like blood. <laughs> right. Or they take a class in something else, and they just discover a new career path altogether. Um, you know, I think because ultimately you don't know what the future will hold, um, the most important thing is to find a school that you'll be happy at and that will give you opportunities to really explore outside the classroom. Um, because mm-hmm. if you do that, you'll be set up for wherever life leads you, whether it is into medical school or if it's away from medical school. You know, if you're a late bloomer and maybe you decide that you want to do medical school um, when you're a junior or senior or you've graduated, there are post-bac programs that you can take all of those required courses um, and go to medical school. If you don't focus on pre-med undergraduate, you know, that's not the end of the line for you. There are other opportunities. Right, right. So, again, it's sort of like I, I liken it to the broken leg test when you're talking to an athlete who is being potentially recruited and trying to decide where they're going to go to school. And it's for me, it's always what happens if you break your leg and you can't play your sport? Are you still going to be right. happy here or are you going to need to transfer? Right. So it's kind of the exactly. same idea. Yeah. Um, and. So I think we've firmly established that the choice of an undergraduate college is really should be much more about you learning and growing as a student than about getting into medical school. So what other factors, because I do think a lot of times families get very focused on the idea that um, where you do your undergrad is going to be a paramount importance to where you get in when it comes time for medical school. What factors would you consider to be much more important than where you're doing your college work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think um, in terms of getting into medical school, the MCAT and the GPA are a very important part of that picture, but medical schools really are considering applicants holistically. Um, So again, going back to it's what you do with where you are. So when Mm -hmm. reading an application, you know, I always look for an applicant that explored medicine um, because you have to show that you've explored it and that you understand the um, the career that you're choosing. Um, I'd look for an applicant that has stayed true to their interests. So if they loved English literature, that they were an English major or continued to take classes in a field of interest. Um, and then understanding the school that they're applying to, um, which is in some ways the most important. Um, mm-hmm. Similar to undergraduate, that 
secondary application is really um, where I would see has the student done the work to understand the school that they're applying to. Um, you know, I could point out that studying medicine in New York City is much different than studying medicine in suburban Palo Alto, but also studying medicine within different neighborhoods within New York City can be a different experience as well. So you have to mm-hmm. understand the mission of the school. Um, and when you can connect that in the application, that just makes for a stronger, um, you know, application. Mm-hmm. So if you were to compare, say, Stanford's mission statement to Columbia's, you will see that Stanford, you know, really places a research, uh, importance on research. And mm-hmm. I've worked at both schools, and in the application process, research is far more important to Stanford than it is to Columbia. Um, so every school is looking for something different, and that can be a, a huge part of the application process for students. Um, and it also helps you understand if the goals of that school really align with your educational goals. You know, right. medical school is really very hard. You know, there's no sugarcoating that. Um, I remember one medical student once told me it's like drinking out of a fire hose. So you need to <laughs> yep. be prepared for that. Um, you need to find a school that aligns with your academic and professional goals so you can survive and, but also thrive during those four to five years that you're going to be in medical school. You know, you want to be in a place that makes you happy, even though it's probably the hardest thing that you're going to have to do in your life. Academically right. speaking, at least. Right, right. But and to your point, there is if you want to be a trauma surgeon, and you're applying to a medical school in the middle of a rural area, that's not really going to be a great fit, right? You probably should be right, somewhere exactly. in the inner city. Um, right. And the reverse is true. If you're sort of looking to be a general practitioner in a rural community, then you might get much more out of going to medical school in that type of environment than you would in the inner city. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't think I ever really thought about that, but that's a good thing for people to keep in mind. Um, Just to throw it out there, because I'm kind Mm -hmm. of curious, and this is absolutely something that we get questions for from students about, you know, if I'm dying to go to Columbia Med School, is it helpful to for me to be uh, an undergrad at Columbia? Um, Does that ease the path at all? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't think it necessarily eases the path. I think you know, sometimes you do look at the composition of um, schools that are represented um, at a given medical school, and it feels like there's a heavy um, contingent of students who have gone there undergraduate. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that there is a specific emphasis placed on that undergraduate institution's um, graduating students. Um, I think sometimes students just want to stay with the school that they're at. You know, they're mm-hmm. happy with their institution. They really enjoy where they live. So even if it, the campus is, is in a different place, like, you know, Columbia undergraduate is in a, is further downtown than, or downtown, it's still uptown, but, you know, further <laughs> downtown than the medical center, but they want to stay with Columbia. Um, right. You know, the same thing with Stanford. I think that, um, that that's why you tend to see um, more undergraduates of that institution represented than any sort of bias within the application process. Right, exactly. So they had probably options to choose from, and they opted for the thing that felt the best. You know, and I always used to tell students when I worked at Penn that um, it wasn't that Penn Medical School, they wanted a diverse community. But, you know, if you were there at Penn, maybe you had also the opportunity to make some connections within the community. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's all on you, too. It isn't like just going to Penn suddenly made your application float to the top. Um, Exactly. 
Yeah. Um, exactly. So, Again, it goes back to making sure you're taking advantage of opportunities. Um, no matter right. where you are, makes you the strongest student. Just going to a school doesn't make you the strongest student for that medical school. That's exactly right. Perfectly put. Lauren, thank you so much for coming today. This is very helpful. Thank you for having me. I had a really great time. All right, good. Um, so again, thanks to Lauren. Thanks to all of my guests today, Stacy and Judith. Um, next week, Ian is here. He is going to be going inside the admissions process at Georgetown in another one in our series on um, helping our listeners understand what's going on behind the scenes. Um, we're also going to be talking about late scholarships that have summer deadlines. So for those of you still looking for money, that might be helpful. Um, and we'll do another in our office hours segment. If you have questions, we are going to have a, a show coming up soon where we're going to be basically spending most of our time answering your questions. Send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Um, we have a great blog. It's free to you. It's getblog.getintocollege.com. We're on Pinterest and LinkedIn. Um, I have my series going on the Huffington Post all around um, evaluating your opportunities, your chances of getting into an Ivy League or similarly selective institution. So you might want to check that out. You just Google my name, Elizabeth Heaton, and uh, you should find at least one of those, and that will lead you to the rest. Um, and then if you want, you can sign up for free downloads of our show on iTunes. Um, and there's an opportunity to rate the show while you're there. It's getting in uh, a college coach conversation. Um, so you want to type in that whole title. Give us a rating. Download those shows. Um, and don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Music.